My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. May your coffee, your intuition, and your pelvic floor be strong. You may have spotted this meme on Facebook or Instagram. It always makes me smile. I'm guessing you're familiar with those two first items, but how much do you know about your pelvic floor? Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I'm so thankful that you're listening. Today, we're going to explore life-changing applications of physical therapy for trans and cisgender folks with the incredible Heather Jeffcoat, DPT, who is returning for her second Girl Boner appearance. We'll also address a question from a listener who pees pretty often during sex and debunk some myths such as pain during sex is normal and you should just grin and bear it. Before we dive in, a quick reminder to sign up for occasional Girl Boner extras at augustmclaughlin.com or girlboner.org. I share updates about once a month, which include lessons from my personal Girl Boner journey, behind the scenes fun, freebies, discounts, and some news about upcoming events. I have a whole bunch of cool book things coming up. You can also find my new Girl Boner book on Amazon. And if you enjoy it, I would really appreciate an honest review there. I'm so pleased to welcome Heather Jeffcoat to the studio. Heather is one of the over 40 experts featured in the book, and I'm so grateful for all she brings to conversations around sexual health. She's the author of Sex Without Pain, A Self-Treatment Guide to the Sex Life You Deserve, a recognized expert in the field of women's health physical therapy, and the owner of Fusion Wellness and Physical Therapy and Femina Physical Therapy, with two L.A. offices She specializes in treating orthopedic and pelvic health physical therapy diagnoses through the lifespan. She and the therapists at her practice are LGBTQ friendly and have advanced training in pelvic health and treating the special needs of transgender patients. Thank you for being here, Heather. August, thanks for having me back again. You're so awesome. I love your work so much. I wonder if you could share, before we jump in, anyone who's not familiar with your work or maybe didn't catch our first interview, tell people what inspired you to become an expert specifically in in pelvic health? So when I first went to physical therapy school at Duke University, I did not have any clue that pelvic health or pelvic floor physical therapy existed. I thought I wanted to do pediatrics or sports medicine and, you know, these more traditional roles that physical therapists fill in the healthcare arena. And You know, at Duke, the reason why I mentioned where I went is because they had one of the first programs in the country that was very specialized towards more what they called at the time women's health. It was very female focused with um, incontinence, pelvic pain issues that can arise from the pelvic floor, uh, pregnancy related diagnoses. But over the years, that really that role has expanded to men's pelvic health, transgender pelvic health. But I, you know, I just had no idea that it existed until I went to Duke and was exposed to that subset of the population. And even at the time, I was not entirely sure that that's what I wanted to do because that's not why I went. I had this preconceived notion of working with athletes and wanting to do more of like a sports-related focus. And as I was going through the program, you know, I had a couple friends that were really interested into that. And in fact, that's why they even came to Duke was because they wanted to do pelvic floor therapy. That was the whole reason they came. And they just had this big passion and it was infectious. And then I started to develop a passion. And when I graduated, my first job was sports medicine. And I realized that's not what I want to do. Like, I do like this population. But when you're in a sports medicine setting, unfortunately, a lot of times it's very like we call it physical therapy mill. Like there's several patients per hour or, you know, or like three patients per hour. But still, you know, they're just not really getting good quality care one on one time. And what I really craved was more one-on-one time. And the way I was able to do that was to switch into this pelvic health arena because you can't, or you should not, I should say, see like two or three patients per hour. It just doesn't work for that population. You're dealing with very sensitive, 
uh, you know, sensitive personal issues that a lot of times only you know about. Like sometimes they don't even tell their partners that they have some of these issues. They're hiding them because they're very sensitive and they're embarrassing. They're And you can't share them with girlfriends, although I think everybody should say, hey, yeah, I hurt with sex too. Like that's not normal. Oh, who do you see? Great. Maybe I can get help too. But that's these are not the conversations a lot of people are having around their uh, their sexual health. And so um, anyways, I just saw it as a great way to be one-on-one. And then I was also really good at treating this and have the right personality for it. And just over the years, I've been doing it now for gosh, like over 15 years, uh, just took more and more classes. And, you know, it becomes very much centered on pelvic health and what's in the pelvic floor and what kind of things are in the pelvic floor. But over time, you realize that the pelvic floor is really orthopedic physical therapy also. It's just specialized orthopedics. And the pelvic floor does not exist in isolation. So for anyone who's not quite familiar, because I feel like we hear it in context of like yoga, right? Sometimes. And people have a general idea, well, it's somewhere in the pelvis. But what actually is the pelvic floor? So whenever anybody mentions the pelvic floor, typically they're talking about the pelvic floor muscles, which of which there are many. But if you read like Cosmo, they'll typically call it like the PC or pubococcygeus muscle, which is just one of many pelvic floor muscles. And they play very important roles in our health. They are responsible for uh, maintaining continence, so sphincter activity, so that we don't leak which nobody wants to do. It's very embarrassing. Um, But in addition to being able to contract prevent leakage, we also have to be able to relax those muscles so that we can pee or poop. You know, we... A lot of people have constipation not because of diet necessarily. It's because their muscles are not coordinated, and they think they're pushing down, but they're actually contracting up, and that's a problem. So teaching patients how to contract as well as relax that sphincter layer is really critical. Um, They also play a role in sexual function and orgasm and... um, they uh, also help support all of our organs in our pelvis, the the bowel, the bladder, the uterus, if you have one. So they're very important. And if and you have any deficits in any of those arenas, you will have a huge change on your quality of life, whether mm. it's you can't run because you feel like, you know, your organs are coming out or you're leaking because you run or you can't have sex because your muscles are overactive and don't allow for penetrative intercourse um, and so many other problems, which we'll probably get into more, but they you know, people will change their life because of these problems. Yeah. And I love what you said at the beginning about being potentially the first person anyone talks to. Because I think back on some issues in my own life when I hadn't told anyone and how incredible that is to have a safe space to share. You know, I remember like sweating and shaking. Like it, it can be a really, really intimidating thing, but something that I feel gives so much relief and validation to be able to share with somebody who who also understands it and and doesn't themselves find it embarrassing. Exactly, because these are embarrassing things for our patients to even bring up with their physicians. And rightfully so, they've there have been many negative experiences that these patients have had with their physicians when they've tried to bring it up. And mainly it's around the area of, one, they're just dismissed. Like, oh, well, that problem's normal. You pushed out a nine-pound baby, for example. So, of course, you're going to have incontinence. Okay, well, you know, there's a reason you have it, but it doesn't mean that you have to live with it, right. for example. And yeah. also, you know, with uh, with painful sex, like, oh, oh, you're in menopause. So that's normal. Everyone that goes through menopause has painful sex. And it's like, well, okay, again, now we have a reason. I'm glad you identified the reason, but there are still things you can do about it to enjoy your your sexual life beyond 48 or 52 or whatever. Um, so they, they're dismissed a lot of times. And, you know, I feel mo- most of the w- patients that I see are um, female natal sex. So I have a lot more stories around that. But and, and I guess maybe, too, I'm just skewed that so therefore maybe they're more dismissed by their healthcare providers than men are. But I don't know, you know, just because I have such a high population of women um, or they're made to feel like there is a problem with them. Like, again, with women, uh, I've had patients say, oh, well, my doctor said sex hurts because I have a tipped uterus. And, you know, there's like medical terms for that. But 
So then they feel like there's something physically wrong with them, like their uterus is facing the wrong way. Oh, my God, like, there's, what can I do about that? You know, there's nothing you can do about that. And it, it is what it is. And with all these women, that's not why they were having painful sex. Because that's a pretty common thing, and it's not this dysfunctional <laughs> problem, right, to have a – because a uterus can just tip a certain way, and that's just how it is. Yeah, that's just the way their body is, and that doesn't necessarily explain why they're having painful sex. And especially so many of these women that I can recount had pain with penetration. Like the uterus is not right there. Like it's it's up there a little bit. You know, you got to get to the end of the vaginal canal. So if they're having pain with penetration, it's unlikely that their tipped uterus is the cause of their pain. And pain during sex. I know most of us, I think, have, have experienced some sort of pain, maybe just a little discomfort. But there's a big difference between maybe something that feels a little abrasive or you didn't quite use enough lube or something and pain that that is something that could potentially be part of something that could really benefit from treatment. Where is that kind of line? If someone's listening, they're like, oh, I think I have pain during sex, but how do I know if I need to see somebody? So, I mean, I think one of the biggest ways you would know is if you're having to significantly modify what you would otherwise do because of the pain you're experiencing. So, yes, you'd be like, yeah, I really wasn't very aroused and maybe should use more lube. Okay, then next time if you use more lube and you're still having pain, then maybe that is a bigger issue that you can address through pelvic floor um, therapy. Um, if it's to where you can't have sex at all, then yes. Like, and, and as long as that's your goal. I mean, if that's not your goal, I'm not going to force that on you. But um, if your goal is to have penetrative intercourse and you physically can't or you can't kind of hang with it because it just hurts so much. You can only last like 30 seconds. Like those are big issues. And those will most likely cause you to modify your activity. You're going to be avoiding sex. Uh, beyond that, how's that going to make your partner feel? Like they're going to feel rejected. And I find with my patients, their stories, it does not just happen around sex. It carries over into every facet of their life. There's always this tension there. So it can really negatively impact their relationship. If there's problems with that, and they're so many times so treatable that, you know, it's just an unnecessary thing. But again, you know, they tell their doctor and their doctor is like, oh, you just need to relax. It's just because you're not very experienced. Just try to have a glass of wine or use more lube. And, you know, so I've had patients that do all those things and they like get so drunk and it still hurts. And, you know, that's just not good medical advice. And then there must be a lot of anxiety, I imagine, around potentially having pain. When if you've had pain multiple times or it's become a thing, then I feel like there'd be this whole fear around even the possibility that would stand in the way of desire, for example. Of course, because you're expecting it to hurt. So there's always going to be that in the back of your mind. But that carries over. And this is where, you know, pelvic floor issues are so much like orthopedic issues and why there is also so much overlap. Because you do that if you're if you hurt your back. When you lift heavy things, you're not going to lift heavy things anymore. If you if your neck hurts after two hours in front of the computer, you're not going to spend two hours at a time in front of the computer. Like you're you're changing your life in all these instances. It's not just around sex, but people are like, oh my god, yeah, she's avoiding sex. Sex hurts. Like there must be something psychologically wrong with her. Is there something psychologically wrong with someone that has back pain? That's <laughs> such a good point. You know, they're yeah, that's it, such a good point. And and when we we sort of digress a little bit, we we're talking about pelvic floor muscles. But again, so these are muscular issues, and they are influenced by other uh, joints and muscles around them. So when I'm evaluating the pelvic floor muscles, which um, you know I, I talked about all those support and sphincter and sexual functions that they have, but they also have connections to your hip muscles. So sometimes people can have hip pain that's really driven from a pelvic floor dysfunction. So you have to clear someone's hip. You have to look at their hip when you're looking at someone's pelvic floor. You have to look at someone's back when they're having pelvic floor issues. You have to look at how they're walking, mm -hmm. right? Like they might have some something going on with their ankle that's changing the forces all the way up what we call the kinetic chain. So you can't you can't just like get on the table and look at your pelvic floor because that might not be the whole picture. Just one piece. I wonder, too, do you find that because problems with with sex affects often another person or people, that that, that is the reason they might come in? Because if it's just their own pain and they're like, oh, it hurts when I exercise, then it's they can kind of try to live with that. But then 
I imagine you might have shame or, or all these feelings around, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm a problem for so-and-so. Right. And it really depends on what motivates them. So um, I've had women that are not currently sexually active, but they just know it's a problem because they've always had a problem and it was a problem with previous relationships. And sometimes it's so severe they can't even use a tampon. So they are doing it kind of for them in the moment because of their history with, you know, just their previous experiences. Um, You know, I've had people where they just never really saw sought treatment until maybe it was like, quote unquote, too late. Like they're already in end stages of divorce, but this was such a big issue. And they're like, they need, again, they need to get it resolved because clearly it's not going to go away on their own. And all in almost every case, these people talk to their doctors about it. And they just, you know, unfortunately, not a lot of physicians know or maybe believe in pelvic floor therapy. Um, But, you know, the this is why I love doing things like this because it's most important to kind of get into the community. So, you know, women know, men know, because um, men have pelvic floors too. We treat all sorts of issues around that, and they just don't even know it's an option. And it must be really difficult too because, as you said, if it's really hard to bring these things up to a doctor. And if you do and then the doctor says, uh, it's all in your head or drink wine or whatever – then how likely are you to then go to another professional? And especially if you don't even know about pelvic floor therapy. Right. Like how would people find, how do people find you usually? I mean, I get a lot of just word of mouth, Google search. People can figure, you know, put in some of the symptoms that they're feeling because they're not going to know. For example, uh, one of the big things I treat is vaginismus, which is vaginal muscle uh, spasm or muscle guarding or overactive pelvic floor or vulvodynia. So, you know, they but they might not know that they have vulvodynia, for example. Who would know that? Like just walking on the street. So they're going to be searching more like can't have sex or whatever. And so, you know, coming up on Google with those types of searches is how a lot of times they'll find me. Or if they're just really informed and they, you know, listen to podcasts like yours where they might get that information. Um, So but I would say it's a lot of like self-directed search and, um, and, you know, like half of my uh, patients do come from doctor referrals, but it's like the cluster of doctors that are sending the majority of patients. And I see. Yeah, 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 it's not. Which means like, they must be, these issues must be far more common than any statistics show, I imagine, because some people I must live so. with this their whole life, which is pretty sad. I know. I think that really the statistics are underreported. And there was even a study that talked about the underreporting of statistics because if a doctor doesn't think it's a problem, then they're not even going to record it as a problem, right? They're not going to be like, my advice to her was to have a glass of wine. Like, they're never going to. So it's just going to be something they talked about that they don't even put in their notes because to them it was a non-issue. There was nothing to be done. So, um, So, yeah, it can be become a girl problem. I know you've been working more recently with some transgender patients. Could you speak a bit about that? I know in some cases it's they've they've had gender affirming surgery or perhaps they're having another issue because, as you said, everyone has a pelvic floor. What has that experience been like? So um, so we could talk like postoperatively first, but then I do also want to talk about preoperatively what, what can be done um, or if they're choosing not to go through surgery at all, how they can kind of manage uh, common things that we see. So, you know, uh, postoperatively, the, one of the big things I think about when, and what I'm assessing is looking at uh, scar tissue restrictions and how that also can create fascial restrictions. Because this is major surgery, and scar tissue um, happens. You know, you cut into someone, you will have scar tissue. And everybody is a little bit different in how they uh, lay down scar tissue. Um, People with darker pigmentation in their skin tend to get more of like a keloid scar. So then, you know, would be just genetically at a higher risk for developing really restrictive scar uh, scar tissue. And that can limit them in many ways. If you have a lot of scar tissue in like your abdomen and pelvis, that can lead to like bowel issues, bladder issues, sexual dysfunction, um, just having that limited mobility of the joints and the tissues in the area. It could also lead to pain. It could it could lead to hip pain, um, just in general like pelvic pain in the area. So scar tissue is is a is a big one, um, but we can also help with. Uh, 
not just pain in the classic sense related to scar tissue, but any voiding dysfunctions that might come up postoperatively. So in somebody that's a trans male undergoing um, like a phalloplasty where they're getting the um, external male genitalia, uh, they have to go through urethral lengthening. And so, you know, that this is all surgical stuff, but yeah. with the there is a, the potential, obviously, that scar tissue can form, um, that they might pick up some pelvic floor muscle dysfunction uh, around the pain in the area. So what happens with um, and, and, you know, anytime you have pain or even surgery around most of the areas that I treat, you will get a little bit of like increased tone in the muscle, some elevation in muscle tone, or just even like a resting state overactivity in the muscle. And that when that happens, you can think about uh, if you have to pee, that maybe you can't let go. Like you're just retaining or you just have a slow stream. So we can work on the muscles around that area and make sure that they're able to fully relax to I allow see. for voiding um, and also, you know, related to bowel that they yeah. that they can defecate. So how do you work with scar tissue? Is does scar tissue stay? I mean, is that something that you try to minimize or it's that you're trying to work with the muscles around it so that they aren't causing these problems? So scar tissue will always be there. Like I can't get rid of scar tissue. I'm just trying to minimize the negative effects of scar tissue that goes um, sort of unchecked. Because if if you, how, how I describe it to patients is if you just let scar tissue go, then it kind of just develops thick, fibrous, um, you know, fibers that, that go all directions. It's really irregular, and you don't know where those fibers are going to land. So it could really restrict motion even just in, like, one or two planes, not think of, like, you know, as having 360 degrees range of movement. It might just be in, like, a few degrees of those range, but that can, over time, start pulling on other structures that lead to, like, maybe anterior hip pain in someone with a phalloplasty, for example. Um, so we're trying to just make that like irregular mess of scar tissue be a little bit more regular and uniform and not tug on everything else in in the area but but there will always be scars we can't get rid of a scar and there'll always be scar tissue therefore but we're trying to work on um, just improving mobility in the sure. area. Sure. That's so wonderful that you're able to do that. So you mentioned preoperative things that you can do. So if somebody's considering having an operation of this nature there are things you can do to – would these help prevent certain issues or um, – So not around scar tissue, but preoperatively I'm thinking um, more with uh, female to male and the fact that they're wearing binders, a lot of them. So – and it also depends on the age that they come in. Like we could be a really good resource for them to help identify uh, safer ways to bind, you know, like – Saran wrap and ace wrap is not the way to go, for example. So we could be a really valuable resource to parents that are, you know, want to support their kids but not sure how and, you know, how much information do you want to get off the Internet for these kind of things. So we could be like a really good professional resource for that. But when you get people that are a little older, they've been binding for a long time, you can get restrictions with thoracic spine mobility, rib mobility, leads to postural dysfunction, so they can end up with back pain, neck pain, tension headaches, which these are all general orthopedic things. But if you go to someone that's not familiar with the uniqueness of the transgender population, you can't treat them in the same way as you would treat just someone else that like maybe has tension headaches because they have a very specific reason for this postural dysfunction. It's not just postural dysfunction in isolation like like a lot of us like right. or a lot of um, other people might experience. So, you know, we're not treating them differently, only acknowledging the uniqueness of their situation. And there's just a lot that we can, you know, do to help them feel more comfortable. And, of course, they're still going to bind if, if, they, if they feel that strongly about it. But what can they do when they're not binding to help reverse those changes so that then, therefore, now they don't have back pain all the time or tension headaches? Uh, so that would huge. be, like, a, a really good example for preoperative um, female uh, to male. An example for preoperative uh, male to female. Um, I have a really great patient now who um, has only had the chest masculinization surgery, 
but is exploring and may or may not do the bottom surgery, but, you know, does acknowledge that there is uh, pre-existing pelvic floor dysfunction. Like growing up as a female, had painful tampon insertion, painful sex, just knows there's always something wrong there. Why he is coming to me now is because he has like hip pain, back pain, and just acknowledges I've just been dissociated with this area, you know, really strong in the legs, like no glutes, right? It's just anything in that hole, if you just kind of cut all those muscles out around the pelvic area, they're very, one, uh, weak and underdeveloped where they shouldn't be, and then internally they're very overactive. And overactive, I should point out, does not mean that it's strong because it seems like it's contracting all the time. It's actually very weak, and this goes into more like muscle physiology and something called a length tension curve that basically is shaped like a bell-shaped curve, and your peak strength is in the middle of that bell-shaped curve, if anyone can visualize that, and your weaker points on our, are on either tail end. So if you're short and tight, then you're weak, and also if you're overstretched and long, like if a woman has a baby and like her abdominal muscles get overstretched, for example, it's also weak in that overstretched strength. So, you know, you don't want to be too much of either way. And that's yeah. where physical therapy can help address it because you're not, most of my patients are not uniformly overactive everywhere. There's usually spots where they're under and spots where they're over and it can become complex in how to manage that appropriately for them. It's really heart-wrenching just to think about the the disconnect, you know, that there is there is that sense of aloneness probably around not, you know, feeling so disconnected from your whole pelvic area, you know, but then also must be so empowering to be able to work with somebody and to be not only going through these procedures and everything, but to be so validated by somebody, a professional who can say, you know, I, I honor this process you're going through and we can make your life better, that these are quality of life issues. And even that things like tension headaches could be connected to pelvic floor stuff. I mean, do people right. realize that? Well, so many of my patients, I, I do eventually ask them if they also have neck issues because when they're coming to me initially, it's usually for pelvic floor problems. But a lot of them have issues with tension headaches. And in our brain, like our, our upper cervical, upper neck area is and jaw area, which is very much interlinked with the upper cervical area, musculoskeletal-wise. In our the way our brain is arranged, it happens that that area I just discussed is right next to the genital area, like right border. So our brain is not wired like our head is next to our neck, is next to our chest, is next to our belly, is next to our pelvic floor. It's not wired like that at all. It's very disjointed. So yes, um, it is when you um, are like trying to have an orgasm, you could try to like clench your jaw to intensify. You could try to curl your toes because the toes are on the other side of that. So, and, and some women do that automatically. They're not necessarily trying. I was going to say that happens. happens sometimes. Like you can get a foot cramp. Because because <laughs> our yeah. brain is not like this section ends and then that section begins. There's overlap between the sections. So you can either tap into that and consciously make it overflow or you can um, – or it just happens naturally. That jaw thing is interesting. So you can clench your jaw and you might have more pleasure. Perhaps. Possibly. For some people. It. Yeah. I think the toes are the more common one. Okay. but But anatomically – it just it makes perfect sense why someone with a lot of pelvic floor tension would also experience tension headaches because you know they're they're so they're just right next to each other in the brain. Yeah, and because also headaches are so common, you know people might not connect them. So what would you do postoperatively for a trans woman who had done the gender affirming surgery? So one of the biggest things that we do with them is help support in dilator training. Um, they'll get their kit from their physician early on. Um, most of the physicians I know will start at about day seven with vaginal neo-vagina uh, dilation. And then we'll have to do that three times a day for 12 weeks. So it's a very big time commitment. Um, if they maintain uh, sexual activity beyond that, then they can typically dilate for just once a week. But if they don't have a sexual partner, they typically still need to dilate every day to help maintain that space. And as a pelvic floor therapist, using dilators for decades, it's we're the perfect uh, population or the perfect uh, healthcare provider, I should say, to help with that population as well and supporting their ongoing use of dilator um, 
dilator use. And um, one thing that I've learned as well, because I've been to now like a couple different conferences, a course, like I've really been diving into this so that I can do everything I can do for this population. They, um, when they're having this surgery, um, the male to female at the neovagina, some of those pelvic floor muscles that we were talking about earlier do go into spasm. So their pain can be coming from Vag- from their pelvic floor muscles, just like in a, a woman that was born with her female anatomy. And so the treatments can be very similar and overlapping in, in that way for that population. But, but dilators are, are the big thing as well as all the scar tissue that we talked about uh, beforehand. Right. I feel like a lot of people aren't really able to picture what might happen if they go to a a pelvic floor expert or a pelvic health expert, a physical therapist, could you explain just in general kind of what an appointment would be like? Like how do you assess muscle strength, for example? So uh, the initial visit that we do for anybody with a pelvic floor issue is 90 minutes. And so we start off doing a detailed history. We send them paperwork ahead of time so that we can just maximize our time that they have in office. But we're trying to look at their pelvic health and identify issues there, but also identify any other contributing, potentially contributing orthopedic issues. And so we, we do a, a history um, orally, and then we do a two-part physical exam. So the first part of the physical exam is more of a classic general orthopedic exam. We're looking at their posture. We're checking their range of motion and their spine and in their hips, watching how they walk. Depending on their symptoms, maybe have them do a few other functional type activities. But it's very much like you would think of, oh, I'm going to PT for my back. Like we're looking at all these same things we would. And then the unique part of it is the part two of the physical exam, which is a pelvic floor muscle assessment. And we look by, we start off by palpating it to see, like, does it feel like normal tone? And that's something that takes time to, to develop. But also within that palpation, is it recreating their pain? Very important in a lot of these instances for us to be able to recreate their pain, not just cause pain because we don't want to cause pain, but recreate it. Because if we can recreate it, then we know, okay, this is probably one of the primary areas that are contributing to your pain because we just exactly recreated what your symptoms are. Um, and then we test strength manually. So it's just when we're palpating, it's one gloved finger that's well lubricated. So we're not going in there with like a speculum when we're doing this muscle exam. We're very gentle. And we're assessing their ability to also contract the muscle. Can they contract it in isolation? Can they relax fully after the contraction? Does it hurt for them to contract? Um, so we're looking at coordination issues as well. Um, if they can contract, how strong does it feel? Again, just because it might be, quote unquote, tight doesn't mean it's strong. Like they may be barely able, like a flicker of a contraction. Uh, to be able to assess that. Yeah. So, and then um, oftentimes, so especially if they have pain while we're assessing, we're also treating. And there's lots of different like internal manual therapy techniques that we utilize. And a lot of them I talk about in my book as well. But, um, you know, they might have urinary stuff going on, like something called interstitial cystitis or painful bladder syndrome, where my book doesn't cover that specifically. Um, It maybe covers about half of what you need to know for that, but there's just other areas of the pelvic floor that need to be assessed for that. And and so, yeah, we're just trying to recreate their symptoms, treat while we're there. And then ultimate end goal for that first session is that um, if they're coming for something like a sexual pain or a bladder pain, that we're giving them a tool called a dilator to be able to work on uh, their program independently as well. Teach and them. And that's the to... one with the different sizes, right? Where they start really small, and it is you insert it like a tampon. Is it? Yeah, that would be a dilator kit. So the smallest one does come, and it's the size of a petite tampon. Uh, but you can also get specialty like curved dilators that are helpful in people with like bladder pain or helpful in men that have pelvic floor issues like urinary urgency and frequency, which is more typically called the version we see a non-bacterial prostatitis because you can have prostatitis and it have a bacteria. We don't treat that. We treat the non-bacterial. And what it should just say, I think it should be called like musculoskeletal prostatitis so mm. that people are correlating it to a muscle dysfunction. I see. Because that's a, when the prostate is uh, inflamed. So, But it's not really inflamed only in the sense that it's um, 
compressed by all these overactive muscles. Gotcha. So it's misleading. It's very different than an infection. It's very different from an infection. And the treatment's completely different. Completely right? different. You wouldn't yeah. use medication. Yeah, these, um, these men with um, non-bacterial prostatitis often have had several rounds of antibiotics that didn't work because it's not an infection. And then they're finally, if they have a good urologist, referred to pelvic floor therapy for assessing the musculoskeletal dysfunction. So we have a really interesting question that ties in a bit because I know you work with a lot of people who are dealing with urinary incontinence and, and things that affect the bladder. This question came from Frankie who said this, I pee pretty often when I orgasm and sometimes just when sex is really intense. Not a huge amount, but then I have to pee really bad right after. Is this normal? Frankie. First, here is what Dr. Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com had to say. Frankie, great question. And I can definitely say it is normal. And in fact, it's not uncommon. Um, as many as 60% of women have some level of general incontinence, sort of leakage, during sex. And according to the National Association for Continents, approximately 25 million Americans um, have either short-term or long-term incontinence, which is leakage. Um, and up to 80% of those are women. In fact, one in four women over 18, again, these are young women, experience occasional leakage. So, you know, I hope you can appreciate with those kinds of statistics, you're definitely not alone. Um, and often, you know, it may indicate either an overactive bladder or even weak pelvic floor muscles. So um, I'm going to make some suggestions in terms of things that you can be doing, uh, seeing whether or not that changes for you. But when and if um, you're still finding leakage and it's causing distress, definitely I would have you go to your urologist uh, because they definitely can seek to diagnose, again, whether or not it's an overactive bladder um, or poor pelvic floor muscles, which again, you can see a pelvic floor uh, physical therapist. Um, but that also, there are a number of treatment options, including medication. So before getting into, you know, potentially the medical aspects of it, it's important, and I imagine you're definitely emptying your bladder before sex and after sex. It's always a good idea and certainly can uh, decrease the potential risk for UTIs or yeast infections. Um, but I think... The other thing is, and I'm not sure if you've experimented with this or not, is practicing Kegel exercises. Um, and not to make this question too long, you can certainly look more about how exactly to do those Kegel exercises. But the way to sort of practice is to, you know, it's what happens when you um, stop the flow of urine. And we help people identify the sensation of the pelvic floor muscles by stopping the flow of urine, but it's certainly not a practice you want to do all the time because that actually does interfere with fully emptying your bladder. So you don't want to do that uh, in any consistent way. But ideally, you want to be working up to doing 20 Kegels at a time, three to four times a day. And when you do the Kegel, the contraction, holding it for five to seconds each time. Um, and again, the contraction and the relaxation being the same length of time. So I certainly would start, if you haven't already, practicing Kegel exercises, because I think that in and of itself may change and you may no longer have sort of that leakage. And the other question potentially is, you know, is this urine or is it female ejaculation that's happening with orgasm? Um, and again, there's certainly some controversy there, right, in terms of the fluid, whether it actually is urine or it's a fluid that it's created by the periurethral glands, which are the Skeen's glands. Um, and these are the glands that are basically akin to the prostate, which is what produces male ejaculation. So, you know, one thing it's not yet clear to me is whether or not this might be female ejaculation or it's urine. Um, but I think importantly, when and if you've practiced the Kegels, you empty your bladder before and after, and again, thinking about also not drinking too much fluids before, staying away from caffeine and alcohol, all those factors can contribute. Um, practicing Kegels, and as I said, when and if it's still distressing you, certainly reach out to your doctor because as I said, you are not alone. This is fairly uh, and very common and there are many treatment options. As always, love to hear how it goes. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. I loved uh, many of those points that she made. The female ejaculation thing, so many people do think that they peed when they ejaculate. And there is one study that showed that the fluid has trace amounts of urine, but 
about the same amount that semen has because semen also has trace amounts of urine. So that was pretty interesting. What would you add to that? Um, Because I get this question from some of my patients over the years as well. And so what I I tell them is um, a lot of what she said was great. Um, they, if they really want to determine if it's maybe like all all urine coming out, they can take azo. Um, it has like a long chemical Is name. Is that the phenyl the azo purity UTI thing? Uh, not to no, not to treat it. It actually like a test though. To yeah, see if you have one. It will change your um, the color of your urine to like a reddish orange. So, you know, if you take it or I tell people if you don't want to take something, because some people, you know, I get a lot of natural granola type people in Los Angeles. Not don't mean that derogatory. Just, you know, they're just very much don't want anything negative, uh, chemical related. Like you could eat asparagus and see if it smells. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Or, or, or if you did drink coffee. Yeah. Or um, beets. Beets will turn your urine red as well. So they can, um, you know, do more natural things to see if it changes color and what does anything come out but knowing that like if they do azo it can stain things so like Uh, you know you may want to put a towel down just as a heads up um beets probably would too i guess now that i think about it um people dye their clothes in like beet juice so um so yeah so that would be one thing too if if they you know wanted to kind of test it but again right like there is a little bit of urine in there anyways so um I think people get a little bit too over-concerned about it and try to just relax and enjoy the moment. Yeah, because fluids are flowing during sex. (laughs) Yeah. um, With regards to that initial question, though, of, um, you know, is it, I think, the original question about is it normal to is have it to normal pee after as well? Also, yeah, she said she really has an intense need to pee after. Right. So I do have patients that their urethra, their bladder seems to be really irritated with sex, and it does improve with addressing their overactive pelvic floor. So it could just be um, like that reaction of the, the friction from intercourse and or from penetrative intercourse, and that it just uh, is irritating the muscles and they're just already tend to be overactive, so they still get overactive. And so there, that can be something that can improve if at baseline they have an overactive pelvic floor. Got it. So there are a lot of myths around all of these subjects, I feel. I know that one of them that you speak about a lot in your book and in interviews that you do that pain is so normalized that people think, oh, well, of course, you could even tell a girlfriend that you have pain during sex and it might just be, oh, yeah, that's, you know, I've, I've heard people have had advice from like mothers and grandmothers and aunts and stuff who said, well, of course, it's painful for everyone because there was even less education, perhaps, in the generation of the person who, who you're speaking to. So I know that's one myth. Right? Is that sex is is not actually supposed to be painful? Exactly. I mean, that's the goal that I have for every patient that comes in is for it to be pain free and you know identify the the origin of their pain. So, like I had said before, like a tipped uterus typically not a reason that they're having pain, but they may have some abnormality in their hymen, and that's not like something physical therapy would address outright. That they might need to have that tissue surgically removed. You know, there's different variations. Sometimes the hymen's really thick. And if it does not break appropriately, it can be very painful. Uh, However, most of those women will need pelvic floor therapy after because they have this cycle of guarding and expectation already built up. So that needs to be addressed. And we call it down training, right? So we want to, like, reduce what the muscles are, um, the state that they're in. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, I do not think it should be painful for anybody. And, yes, there might be a reason why it's painful. So let's address the reason and then let's get them towards pain-free. So right. whether it's a step hymen or it's scar tissue because they had a vaginal delivery mm-hmm. or it's um, because they have this uh, painful bladder syndrome and their muscles are overactive. Because there was a study that said uh, it's like 48 or 49 percent of women with painful bladder syndrome interstitial cystitis was the old name. So the study actually said interstitial cystitis. They have vulvodynia, which is a painful sex disorder. But I tell you, every patient I've ever seen with IC or interstitial cystitis, I saw like 99% of them had painful sex. So it's just, it's not like I think being reported appropriately. And so maybe they're having painful sex because they have overactive pelvic floor, which is in turn affecting their bladder, but they don't have a bladder problem. They have an overactive pelvic floor problem. So it's this whole... 
mystery decoding sometimes. It is. Especially if they've had a lot of different issues or maybe it's gone on for a long time. And it can affect more things. Like, and then now their hip hurts. I mean, it can start to affect a lot of areas. So finding a provider that not understand not only understands pelvic health but is also good at the orthopedic side because these things are so intertwined. And then it's a spiral in the opposite positive direction where one thing in a chain of events was causing more pain here, more pain there, this other issue. And then I imagine the process of it all turning around must be really amazing. What is that oh, like yeah. to to witness and be a part of? Oh, I mean, it's like what keeps like pushing me forward. It just further like ignites that like fire under me because I'm like wow like my offices are treating these women that felt like there was like no hope and you know for a lot of these women like I was their last resort for example and it's you know they're just like in such a down place and they just don't even believe it but they just really want to feel better and then it's like wow that was actually what helped them like what what were those other eight like procedures and medicine and everything like none of it helped until they had treatment for the the root which was their overactive pelvic floor but you know to make the point that Pelvic floor physical therapy isn't, like, where you necessarily want to come to first. Like, if you have to pee all the time, it doesn't necessarily mean you have an overactive pelvic floor. You might have a UTI. So, um, you know, you need to be cleared medically is my point. You have to make sure you don't have an infection, that you don't have a cyst or, you know, whatever else needs to be cleared medically. And then if those are negative, what's left? You have a whole fascial musculoskeletal system in there, and that might ultimately be what the problem is. So tell us, I know you have some really wonderful events coming up. Could you share a little bit about you have Girls' Night Out coming up and also a Breastfeed LA? Yes. Um, In beginning of October, Breastfeed LA is having an event that one of my um, actually pelvic health occupational therapists is going to be um, present at because I'm out of town at a conference. And it's mainly for professionals and we're just trying to um, you know, midwives and lactation consultants and doulas and trying to just inform them all about pelvic health options around the childbirth years. So that's really exciting to have a table there to be able to interact with professionals in, um, on November 4th. And this will go up on Eventbrite eventually. I'm just still like hammering it out all the details before we go um, live to sell tickets. Uh, It'll be the second time I've done it. I call it Girls' Night Out, Better Sexual and Pelvic Health. And last year, we had four great speakers. I was one of them. But I also had two urogynecologists from UCLA, and I had a sex therapist that's based in Studio City. And we talked about everything sexual and pelvic health. And we took questions from the audience, but I had them write it on a card because a lot of people don't want to, oh, raise my hand. Oh, hey, I have, like, you know, painful sex issues. Tell me more about those. So, you know, people wrote down their questions. We answered their questions. We had awesome raffle prizes. Um we had uh, um, some of the same sponsors that are coming on town, um, coming on board. I'm sorry for for this year's event. It's going to be on November 4th, and this year it's at the Crocker Club in downtown Los Angeles, and it'll be from 6:30 to 9:30 p.m. That's a Sunday evening, and we've got, like I said, some of the same great sponsors like Vivive, who. Um, is with In Control Medical, and they are donating also two intensity vibrators. I'm not sure if you're familiar with those, but they're vibrators that also have electrical muscle stim. Oh, yeah. Those yeah. are amazing. Yeah, so we'll I be giving one. away. It's like full-body cool stuff. Yeah, it's uh, they're giving away two of them, and they're $200 each, these I was going to say, they're luxury. Yeah, they're yeah, and we've got a lot of lubricant companies, and we're going to have gift bags. for, And so all those details will be on our, but it's really fun, and I'm going to be speaking again and I have a physician based out of Santa Monica and I don't want to announce our sexuality expert yet but we're hammering out those details and I'm pretty sure we'll have like a you know really good lineup of speakers for everybody that's so great so you have two websites you have fusionwellnesspt.com and femina pt that's f-e-m-i-n-a-p-t.com and you also have your fabulous book sex without pain where can people find that so you can purchase it from uh, sexwithoutpainbook.com if you want it right away, PDF download. 
Uh, or you can go to any ebook retailer and get it on that device. And Amazon also does sell, sell the print version, so which I really do recommend you get it in print because this isn't a novel you're reading from front to back. It's really more of a workbook, so you're going to be going back and forth. Um, you know, so I feel like a lot of people that end up starting with the ebook end up buying the the print version because it's just not meant to be. You know, it's not a fiction novel that reads from start to finish. Right. I love the workbook aspect. It makes it interactive and very proactive. Yeah, and the in in print version to give people a sort of concept of how many like how much of a read it is. It's ninety nine pages, and in the print version, like the last fifteen to seventeen pages are just like general kind of hip stretches and back stretches because again, pelvic floor problems don't exist in isolation. So it's really a good like seventy ish pages of actual reading and it's really quick to go through like if you did want to just read through it first time like it's not a a real heavy read because the last thing that I think people want to do when they have painful sex is to have to read three or four hundred pages about it like a big heavy clinical thing you want like practical tips and basic info I just wanted it really basic and like you know it's it's so hard to like just get yourself to do the treatment, you know, like why create a barrier of like 300 pages? Right, exactly. I I love that you did that and make this available and spread the word so much. I just think it's so important and your voice is so important. Do you have just one final tip for anyone as far as improving or maintaining general pelvic health? Because I feel like it's a part of our health that maybe we think about when there's a problem, but just in general, what's one thing that we can all kind of keep in mind? Um, so I think that one, if we're talking about like a natal sex female that still has her female anatomy, um, you do not need to douche. You can just let the water run, you know, clean the outside structures, but don't clean inside. I still find a lot of women of various ages that are cleaning inside and it's just it alters the pH balance and can lead to things like eventually if you have irritation can lead to muscle guarding and overactive pelvic floor. So just know that it kind of can clean itself and you don't need to do a lot of uh, extra to that. And to just add in general so that it's applicable to everybody, but know that your instincts are correct. If you feel like um, something is painful or um, or aggravating in any way, like, you know, even like these urinary frequency urgency disorders I see, you know, you might not call it pain, but it's disrupting your life. If you have to pee 12 or 20 times a day, that, that will impact your life. Uh, you know, you, you're not going to be able to go on long car trips, you know. It, so if it, you're experiencing something that's modifying your social behavior, just know that um, you should seek possible solutions for that. And if your physician is saying that, oh, well, you don't have a cyst or an infection, then what other thing could could be going on? And just don't forget that you have a whole musculoskeletal and fascial system that can create a lot of these types of symptoms. I love that. It's brilliant. It's not the end of the road if you get a no or a this is nothing. It's just you keep looking and yes. you figure things out. Thank you. That was wonderful talking to you again. Thanks for being here. Thank you, August. And if you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please subscribe on iTunes if you haven't. You can also listen on Spotify or iHeartRadio. If you like what you hear, I'd really appreciate a rating and review. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.